All right, welcome to the first of its kind, world-changing manufacturers network. Lisa Ryan has her ears to the ground and her heart in the game. Get ongoing education and new connections right here with Lisa and the manufacturers network. Buckle your seat, listen, and spread the word. Here's Lisa. Hey, it's Lisa Ryan. Welcome to the Manufacturers Network podcast. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Noah Graff. Noah is the host of Swarfcast, a podcast that helps professionals in precision machining excel in their careers. For more than 10 years, he's been a used machine tool dealer or treasure hunter, as he likes to call it, buying and selling used equipment all over the world. He's also a blogger and editor for the website Today's Machining World, directed at the precision machining community. So, Noah, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. It's This is really fun. It's fun to be interviewed rather than always doing the interviewing. <laughs> so <Exactly>. I think. <laughs> or so it seems right now. <laughs> so share with us a little bit about your background and what led you to doing what you're doing. Okay. One way you could put it would be nepotism. My grandfather, Leonard Graff, he started Graff Pinkert, our used machine tool business, about 80 years ago. And then my father and my uncle, they went into the business. And getting out of, of school, I was a film and history major. And we, my dad had started this blog. It was a print magazine, Today's Machining World. And because he was a journalism master's in college and it had been always his dream. So he started this magazine about the machining industry. The precision machining industry is what we specialize in. And he said, it was like 2005, he's trying to lure me in and he's, look, broadband is coming. We're, we'll do video interviews and and he was totally right, but he was only, he was like, I don't know, five years a little too early. But I went in there and I started working with the magazine and editing and writing. And then about 2012 or 11, we decided we were going to, print was dying. And so we decided we'd take the magazine all online and I would join the, the treasure hunting business and we would continue to blog, etc. And then about, I don't know, four and a half, five years ago, started Swarfcast, the podcast, which is basically an extension of today's machining world. You might be wondering why we call it Swarfcast. The word Swarf, I think it's actually a British word. It means the chips and the grime and oil that's in the belly of these machines, the machines we specialize in, screw machines, or other CNC machines too. So usually they'll have a chip conveyor at the bottom of the machine, or sometimes they call it a swarf conveyor. And so way, way back with the magazine and then the blog, we started calling it swarf, like swarf was our column, because it's sort of getting down and dirty into what's going on behind the scenes in the belly of the machine. So with all of this work that you do around precision machining, 
What are some of the topics that you cover? You have a podcast and a magazine. Is there that much to talk about in precision machining? I think there's a lot to talk about. And I feel like the podcast, we've tried to keep it a little bit more niche, but with the blog, it's a lot of all kinds of stuff that we just feel like our audiences would be interested in. Everything from like politics and economy and even sports. My dad, he writes 50% of the blogs and then I do a blog and a podcast every other week. But so we, it's a springboard for things, but there's all kinds of things to talk about. Lately, the issues on people's minds are workforce development and always people are interested in technology people are interested in company culture and we come at it with a different slant because we are selling used machines to all of our readers listeners we have ears in it we're just hearing everybody what they're saying and so it gives us an interesting viewpoint and then we like to talk about dealer type of stuff people who we've done we've done deals with machinery types of things that people are buying at the moment trends we're seeing today we published a blog about how we're helping certain companies buy and sell their companies when people have gotten older and they're wanting to sell out or how some other companies it's better to just liquidate their machines that's another thing we we do we'll do auctions and so that's the one minute two minute scoop <laughs> that's one of the things that i enjoy about both my speaking career and my podcast is being around manufacturers and people who are passionate about things that nobody else on the planet ever thinks about so to see that there's that much conversation around precision machining and really touching into that niche market is yeah. is pretty cool so when are you, goes- I mean, a lot of people don't precision machining. I just, it's sort of, for me, it's this normal thing. Cause it's what I've always been around, but in case it's in case people need it's specified, this is it's often metalworking what we're talking about and turned parts. We sell, we specialize in a specific kind of machine called a screw machine and they have CNC okay. screw machines and they have cam mechanical screw machines and we actually specialize in the cam ones which are great because you can just rebuild them over and over again if a machine is from the 80s that's a pretty young screw machine oh wow if i was alive while this machine was around and it's a cam screw machine it's a pretty young machine in screw machine years so some of them were selling might be in the 60s. Like, that's not that crazy. So when we talk about bringing younger talent and newer people into the industry in manufacturing, and you have these kids walking into the plant, seeing machines that are 60 years old, 50 years old, 40 years old, what is it that you can then convey to them about why that I guess with all the automation and the new shiny toys that are out there, again, what is it about that, that you can continue to use equipment that's that old? 
Ah. or young. <laughs> no, you raise a really good point. Getting people to use these machines is difficult. And the thing is, it's what people don't realize is these mechanical screw machines, these are perfect for making certain kinds of parts. These are meant for parts that you're making by the hundreds of thousands. And you can do a pretty precise job with them. And so it's, you might buy one of these machines, you might pay 30 grand or 80 grand for one of these machines. If you wanted to buy the computer controlled version, you might pay a million dollars. So if you're a company that needs to make a hundred thousand parts a year, you're caught in this weird spot where I don't have money to pay for a million dollars for a CNC machine. And these other machines are going to be too slow, these CNC machines. So if they can find the talent, they want to buy these machines. But it is difficult to find young people that want to do it. I know one of our good customers, he has apprenticeship programs in his shop. And in the apprenticeship program, he actually pays more for the people that want to go and learn the mechanical screw machines. The machines are noisy. They're, you're going to get dirty. And younger people, they want to push buttons and be in front of slick computers and screens and in cleaner shops that are quieter. And so it's a little harder, but there are certain people that just, they do fall in love with it. And it is possible to train people on these machines, but yeah, usually people want to do the most cutting edge technology, even if it may not be the thing that's going to make the company the most money. It's just depends on the route these companies are taking, but you're seeing a lot of them phasing them out though. They can't because they just can't find the talent to run these machines. Yeah, I was going to say, because that would bring up even things like the knowledge transfer of taking somebody who's been on that machine, who knows it inherently because they've been working on it and fixing on it for 30 years and bringing somebody in and trying to teach that. How, besides the apprenticeship programs, are you seeing them do anything else? Or is it just a luck of the draw that you find the right person who falls in love with it? I think that... My my impression is if you want to work in a machining company, even if you've gone to trade school, the only way to learn is to be in the shop, working on the machines in that environment. No matter who it is, they're going to have to get trained by somebody, but there's going to be less people around who will be there to train because everybody's retiring. I know we have at Graf Pinkert because some of these machines, we will refurbish them and make repairs. And that's the great thing about mechanical machines. You can keep making repairs. And one guy is retired and he comes back just because he likes it. But that's what you're up against. People people can't find enough workers who want to run the slick stuff, let alone the dirty stuff. So it's a tough situation. Yet, if you know how to do it, you can, it can still be a great living. 
Yeah, it just reminds me of the fixing old cars and old appliances versus fixing the new things where everything is computerized. Exactly. Basically takes a specialist to do. So that I could definitely there, see that there's some saving grace as far as the mechanical. Right. When there's no computers because- into it, think about it. We Would you ever use a computer that was 20 years old? Could you even fathom? But these machines, some of them, some of the CNC machines, they're made so well that you can use a machine from year 2000 that has a computer. But it's... And that's a skill set for the people that are repairing them. And right now in our shop, we have a machine from 2007 and we have a guy, it's called an Emco CNC machine. And we have a guy from the OEM that came to repair it and he's calling all around and trying to figure it out. It's an art to figure out an old computer. Right. Barely have an iPhone for more than three years, much less a computer for longer than that. And they won't repair the iPhone. They just say, we're done. No, you pay $1,000 and it's disposable. So when it comes to workforce, though, so what are some of the, the trends that you're seeing people doing as far as attracting people or once they get them in there to keep them? I think... It's important to, for the industry on the whole and for society to make the manufacturing and the machining business seem cool, seem like, like a good career, but it's often more lucrative than doing something that you would spend a whole bunch of money at college to, to study. So I think that's the first thing you're seeing. What I see is a lot of business owners, they get involved in the community, they get involved in schools and that's, they're gaining personally by it. And they're also just doing it as an altruistic thing. Were you just asking about young people or were you asking about? No, just any, yeah. Anybody that you have just workforce itself, because it's hard enough to find people right now to begin with. And then once you get them in there, it's essential that you figure out how to keep them because they have lots of choices now, as far as if they decide to stay with you or ghost, ghost you at lunch. Well, actually the interview that I'm publishing this week, I interviewed somebody on Sunday who is a recruiter specializing in manufacturing. And so we talked a lot about this. One of the things she says is, if you are a manufacturing company, you need to sell yourself. You need to like treat these employees as though they're a customer that you're trying to push yourself to. She said, she's somebody people can go to, to find a recruiter that specializes in it. She also said, Doing networking, being on LinkedIn is, that's what she's doing a lot. It's, that's a big deal. I think a lot of machining companies we talk to, they have the best results when their own people bring in other people. You you can't always have that, but that's something important. As far as retaining and making your place attractive, I think it's a lot what you're hearing other places too of work-life balance, having better hours, pay 
obviously is important, but everybody can offer that. It's I think the blue collar industry by the hour. Traditionally, I think the employee hasn't had that much control about what their hours are. It was just this is what you do, and this you work this many hours a day, and this is your overtime you can take. And now, one of the companies I interviewed, a machining company, they have had a lot of luck retaining and getting employees by giving people flexible hours, saying, mm. "Oh, you, you're you coach your son's team, so okay, you can work these hours, you can work earlier and get off or later, or you have to take your son or daughter to daycare." So you can come in at X time, or maybe they'll hire a student who can only work part time. They're a heck of a talent, so they'll let them do that. They'll hire them even though they know maybe they'll leave. And sometimes those are the best possible people. I think I think the key is to have an open mind. Yeah, exactly. There were a couple things that you said that stood out. Number one, with during the interview process, where that where you are selling them there's no way that they are selling you on their skills and everything because we have to bring sexy back to manufacturing and let people know the benefits of it there's a lot of people out there that are looking for opportunities i have one of my clients and what they have in their in their yard is their signs is one of the biggest signs that they use is work with your hands really focusing on people that get that intrinsic joy from working with their hands and getting into that. The other thing that I think really shows with manufacturing is the work-life balance, not only being open to the flexible hours, like you just said, that we really have to change our mentality of that. But if you think about machining, that's not something that can be done at home. So it's like at the end of the day, you have your time back. You're not working from home on the weekends and nights and all of these things. So it gives you a built-in opportunity to have the work-life balance while not having any student loan debt or, and not and being able to do what you do what you want and have a really nice career out of it. So it's interesting, just I think from the mind shift that manufacturers have to have. And the flexibility is definitely a huge one. Yeah, but it's not, most of the time, it's still not flexible. Right. I mean, it's, and as you said, you have to go in. And I think that's a, a harder sell to people probably because it's it takes a lot of time to go in. And it's, people are very used to being at home now. So it's definitely a shift. I think personally, I think, in many respects, it's very healthy to go into a workforce and not see the world remotely days a week. <laughs> I, I think it's a complicated issue, but. And I'm hearing so many different <clears throat> ideas. We have the mom shift that I know a lot of manufacturers are talking about that it's, and dads can do it too, but basically 10 to two. So it's like the parents can get their kids off on the bus, then they go to work, and then they You're hearing are about that before. elsewhere as well. Oh, yeah. The mom shift is a big one. I actually, I just spoke at FabTech, 
And one of the guys in my audience was saying you spoke that they- at FabTech. Yes. Oh, yeah, it was. Fab- wow, interesting. I, I say that it's FabTech because it's fabulous. I love FabTech. But he actually said that because he has so many workers that get the benefits from their spouses, that they don't need benefits. And so what he did, and I'm not quite sure all the ins and outs, but basically he allowed people to work fewer hours. So 30 hour week shifts without benefits because they got them from their spouse. And they went for, were able to go from a five day week to a seven day week because employees had the fewer hours, they had more me time on their own. So it's just, I think you ask the questions that you never thought you- Employees were working seven days a week or he just had shifts that were going seven? He had shifts that went seven days a week (laughs) instead of five days a week. So he was actually able to increase his staff by 30% and yet, decrease the amount of money he was paying for benefits. So it was it's an interesting concept, but again, you just think of things in ways that we wouldn't have to think before. Because flexibility and manufacturing usually don't go into the same no. sentence. No. But if you say, how can I? The other thing too is half shifts of people saying, okay, we have a shift from six to eleven. We have a shift from 6 a.m. to 11 a.m. So just again, giving people shorter shifts, looking for ways to give them their time back because that's after two and a half years of pandemic, that's what we're looking for. Yeah, everybody. So what are there any other trends that you're seeing as far as the technology or the workforce? Sure. That you've been highlighting? As far as workforce, again, and technology, lots of people are talking about automating, putting in collaborative robots, cobots. I think that we're hearing a lot about reshoring and nearshoring where work is coming, maybe not coming back to the United States, but it's coming back to Canada or Mexico. It's not necessarily that thick work that once was there is now here. It's more now they're quoting jobs and I'm getting a job now that would have been there. That's what I hear from companies. What about some of the global trends that you're seeing? So anything from across the sea, China, Europe, South America, Asia? Sure. Traditionally, we've done a lot of business with Europe, buying and selling back and forth. And It seems like a little bit of a puzzle right now. Like, I just, I hear things from places. I've heard Italy right now is slowing down a little bit. People are complaining about energy prices over there. Like energy prices in some European countries are like seven times what they were, what they are normally. Mm -hmm. I had, unfortunately, some of this stuff in my world, in the machinery dealer world, it's, it can be a small sample size. I was talking to my some people I knew in Germany who had this really expensive CNC multi-spindle they wanted to sell. And they were complaining that things have been a little difficult with their automotive and the energy prices. And then they're like, oh, sorry, the guy can't sell the machine. Now he's got too much work for it. He's got a job. Mm-hmm. Let's see what else. 
you know, we're about to buy some machines in Japan. We're pretty excited about that. Some CNC Swiss machines. These are screw. It's a kind of screw machine. That market is still pretty crazy. If you can get one of these machines that new would probably be about 250,000. But if you can get one that's 12 years old, you should at least get a hundred grand for it, which is pretty good. It's so that's making us go all the way to Japan to get these machines. We do crazy stuff like that. But of course, right as we were negotiating for the machines, the yen all of a sudden popped up like 4%. So (laughs) a bit of our margin is shrinking, but still, so that's interesting. They, China, I mean, they, obviously they're suffering because of the pandemic and different things that the government's done as far as shutting people, shutting them down, et cetera. But I, in the interview that I just did this week, I was talking to a guy who sells star Swiss machines, the same kind that I, this is like one of the name brands of Swiss screw machines. And he was saying that in China, they buy more machines in a month than they'll sell to the U S in a year. Is says that it's that's how much they're manufacturing. Wow. Yeah, it and, kind of blew me away. And are the machines that different? I mean, if you understand an American screw machine, is it pretty easy to pick up a Japanese or a German model, or is it a whole new learning oh. curve? Oh no, the machines this guy was selling. This is a star. These are made in Japan. Okay. A bunch of the machines. So this Swiss style screw machine, basically there's some of the main ones are from Japan. There's one from Korea. There's one from Switzerland, very famous. It's called Tornos. The Swiss, the reason they call it Swiss is because the people who invented this kind of machine were making watch parts in Switzerland. Hmm. And they needed a specific machine that could make long, narrow precise parts. The United States, they have a few machine tools that they make. Haas machines, those are very popular. They make them all over the place. There's a screw machine called a Davenport, which is, that's one of the old school screw machines where I said you could sell a machine from the 70s and it would still be pretty good. They make these still. This is also called the machine that won World War II because it can just make parts. You can make one part in two seconds. If you ask anybody around the world, even people in Europe that are making really fancy machines, the Europeans make a lot of really expensive, high-end screw machines. They'll say, no, this is the machine that won World War II. So Um, talk about that. That's really an interesting historical fact. So why did it win World War II? That was the logical question. The reason it won World War II is because, as I mentioned, so this is a machine, it's called a multi-spindle. So these are the machines for making 100,000 parts a year or more. And it has, normally they have six or eight spindles, which is six lathes all in a row. And so they're all doing one 
piece of the part at the same time. So it can work super fast. This machine has five spindles. And meanwhile, the Germans, their machines were only one spindle. So we were popping okay. bullets out five times as fast as they were. And I think I'm not a historian, but I've read places that one of the reasons that the Germans lost was that they ran out of bullets. They were using wood bullets at the end of the war. So these machines, they can, they, and they're still used now. And the design is almost the same as it was then. It's crazy. They still, wow. it's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's a nice little history lesson built into the podcast today. I did not know that. <laughs> and with my husband being a World War II buff, I'm going to have some trivia Ask for him, Ask him about too. Tell him the, Daven, <laughs> the Davenport screw machine, one World uh -huh. War II. One World War II. All right. As we start to get to the end of our time together, what would you say, what would you like to leave the audience with as far as precision machining, what's interesting, what's happening, what you're excited about. Oh, dude, I totally should have just, <laughs> I need to come up with a canned answer because I always <laughs> ask somebody like this. I always ask stuff like this in my podcast. So do you have anything else to say to the people of the world? That's what I always ask them. <laughs> do I have, so you're asking, do I have anything specific yeah. to say about? Yeah. That we didn't this? talk about that you want to make sure that you get out there. Sure. I think that I'm going to echo what a lot of people tell me when I interview them in our podcast that manufacturing industry in the United States is just tons of opportunities. You're looking for a place to find a career. It's there's a lot of opportunities if if that's your thing. If your brain is made for that. And Right now, Wall Street, Main Street, everybody seems there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And it all does trickle down into manufacturing. But that said, the people in our industry, they're still very confident and they still need people and need machines. And most of them have not said, yeah, I'm losing all these jobs. I'm getting rid of stuff. I'm, we're getting conservative. We're ready to hibernate for the winter. People are a little cautious because they're hearing things, but people are staying aggressive. They're feeling very upbeat about where things are going. They generally have more work than they can handle. So that's great to see. And it's just interesting how the bankers and Wall Street and the newspaper, it's not, they're not exactly in sync with our world. Exactly. If people did want to continue the conversation with you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? I think, number one, I would love it if you guys checked out our podcast and website. So the website is todaysmachiningworld.com and the podcast is Swarfcasts. That's S-W-A-R-F-C-A-S-T. So I think that could be interesting for people if they want to find me. I've been getting more involved in LinkedIn. Noah Graf 
And uh, yeah, go to todaysmachiningworld.com and you can find my contact info there and email me. All right. Awesome. Noah, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. I'm Lisa Ryan, and this is the Manufacturers Network Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Manufacturers Network Podcast. Do me a favor and share this podcast with your friends and colleagues so we can grow this network and connect more fantastic folks just like you. You can either send your buddies to the website at manufacturers-network.com or share the Manufacturers Network podcast on your LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or wherever you and your industry friends hang out. The bigger and faster we grow the network, the stronger and deeper the community we'll all have. Thanks again, and I appreciate you.